0: Well, we're going to take a look this morning. Uh, I'm going to introduce the book of First Samuel in the Old Testament. so if you wouldn't mind turning there, I want to give you a little bit of the introduction to these books of first as well as 2 Samuel. I've decided to do an exposition of both rather than starting in Second Samuel, so We will do an introduction to both of these books. The history of Israel viewed as the theocracy or the kingdom of God consists of three periods. First, under the guidance of the prophets from Moses to Samuel. Second, was that of the rule of kings. That would be from King Saul to the Babylonian captivity. And under the third period is under the reign of the high priest, from Ezra to the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the theology passed through its full development in all stages when he came, to whom all pointed, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ, prophet, king, and high priest of God. The connecting link between the guidance of the prophets and the rule of kings was Samuel, who realized the mission also of the judges, and whom the divinely as he was also divinely a to appoint and inaugurate the new, institu- excuse me, the new institution of royalty. That is, he was going to appoint a king over Israel. There's, in these two marvelous books, 1 Samuel and Second Samuel, the historical narrative of the history of Israel, which, from the prophet Samuel, as he began forth in the introduction of the matriarchs during the period of kings who ruled and reigned over Israel. These two books, which were divided from one book, to show in great detail the events of the lives of Samuel, Saul, and David, which brought forth with more detail than perhaps any other historical book during that period. This morning we're gonna begin with just an introduction of 1st and 2nd Samuel. They were considered as one book in the early Hebrew manuscripts. They weren't divided. The division came later on through the Alexandrian translators when they translated from the original Hebrew to the Greek versions which referred to as the septuagint this adopted also in the vulgate as well as other versions but in the 16th century it was introduced to our editions of the hebrew bible itself the books of samuel contained history of the kingdom of god in israel from the termination of the age of judges to the close and reign of King David, and includes a period of about 125 years of span from 1 Samuel through the end of 2 Samuel, from about 1140 to 1015 B.C. Those are the years that these books cover. The book of Samuel shows the judgment of the prophet Samuel and the reign of King Saul, and is divided into three sections. The reign of Saul from his election to his rejection in chapters 8 through 15 and the decline of his kingdom during the conflict with David whom the Lord had chosen to be the leader of his people in Israel. And then the... aspect of David being chosen in the chapters 16 through 31 and the renewal of the kingdom of God, uh, which was disorganized and without any kind of leadership with the prophet Samuel. So the Jewish tradition ascribed the writing of the book to Samuel. However, the prophet Samuel himself uh, did not write this book. They they tried to also ascribe it to Samuel, Nathan, and Gad, and this was done based upon 1 Chronicles 29.29. It says this, Now the acts of King David, from the first to the last, are written in the Chronicles of Samuel the seer, in the chronicles of Nathan, the prophet, and in the chronicles of Gad, the seer. Now, prophet and seer uh, during this period were both synonymous terms in the Hebrew, referring to the prophetic office. So it wasn't like a seer, uh, one who was calling up demons to try to answer questions for people, the work of satanic work. This is talking about prophets in the Old Testament. The books of Samuel were written during the period, as I mentioned, between 11th B.C. However, 1st and 2nd Kings, as well as some of the literary clues in the text, uh, mentioned the length of David's reign in 2 Samuel. David was about 30 years old when he became king and he reigned for 40 years. The first readers that finished the 1st and 2nd Samuel books were Jews living either in the 6th or 5th century BC. These were the people who actually received the works of First and Second Samuel. They were concerned about putting their nation back together again following the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon. They were also interested in tracing out the historical roots and the theological and political issues that had affected their lives. The majority of the events which are recorded in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, took place somewhere in the vicinity of the central highlands in the land of Israel. The nation of Israel was largely concentrated in an area that ran about 90 miles from the hill country of Ephraim in the north hill country of Judah in the south and between 15 and 30 miles east, and west. This is the geographical location, which you can see in the back of your Bible and looking these locations up. The major cities in First and Second Samuel are located in the central highlands. Shiloh was the residence of Eli, and the tabernacle, Rema, was the birthplace of David. Hebron was the capital when David ruled over Judah, and Jerusalem was considered the city of David. During the period of Judges, the Hebrew tribal groups had settled in their territories. Everyone shared their land and resources, and there was really no central government. There was no one ruling or leading them. This was a shortcoming because it became evident when the Philistines developed into a powerful force and threatened to drive Israel from their lands. Uh, Finally, the elders and tribes approached Samuel and they asked him to appoint a king to become their leader. In 1 Samuel 8.5, It says this, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the other nations. Now, at this point in time, as we look at Samuel, gone astray, and they'd left and tried to seek out wealth. That was their pursuit in life. Samuel was old, and there was no one to rule over Israel. So, the process of moving from the old established form of government to a new organized government led by a king really disappointed Samuel. He did not want that, he knew what it would bring. So, in 1 Samuel, uh, the same six and seven, he says this, but the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. The people wanted a king rather than looking to God to provide their protection and their provision, they wanted a king. They wanted an army. So God said, they didn't really reject you, Samuel. They rejected me. So God said, go ahead. So Samuel described to the people what this new form of government would cause them. So Samuel spoke The text is in Samuel 8, verses 10 through 18. Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him for a king. He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself and for his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties and some to do plowing and some to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take one tenth of the seed of your vineyards and give his officers and his servant, give to officers and servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants, and your best young men and your donkeys, and use them for his work. He will take one tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his servants. You will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. That was in first Samuel eight, ten through eighteen. So if they wanted to abandon their trust in God, God says, Okay, let him have a king. So the books of first and second Samuel describe this transition under Saul and the eventual emergence of David as a ruler and a united Israel and an establishment of David's dynasty. So the purpose of this first and Samuel books, why were they written? The first of the books, the first and second Samuel books, which is just Samuel in the Hebrew, were to serve several different functions. First, and most importantly, they were intended to be used for the Jewish religious community as Holy Scripture. They knew that these would be considered God's Word, and they was God's Word. This as completely as authoritative and trustworthy Word of God, providing guidance and encouragement to the hearers. As scripture, they reinforce the teachings also of the Torah by providing historical examples of both obedience and disobedience of God's law. So the Torah, we all know what the Torah is, right? Okay. First five books of the Bible which we refer to also as the Pentateuch. So at the same time, <clears throat> as they lay this solid foundation for understanding the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, the son of David, because we have in Second Samuel the Davidic covenant, the promise that David's lineage will be carried on to the king and high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. So they function as history. They describe Israel's transition to a monarch, monarchical, excuse me, towards kings leading their government and provide information about Israel's last two judges and first two kings. These events took place over a period of three centuries the late 12th century BC to the early 10th BC. These books supply details about the religious history of Israel, including significant information about worship centers, priestly leaders, and the sacred Ark of the Covenant. One other purpose for writing these books of Samuel was to defend certain leading figures in the Israelite monarchy against the charges that were made against them. Three conventional situations arose during David's lifetime. Each of them needed an accounting. The first was the displacement of Saul's family, his whole family line, by David's rule as king over Israel. The second was Solomon's rise to kingship, even though he wasn't next in line to be king of Israel. Third, Abathar, who lost the role as a leader in Israel worship. He was one who was a high priest descendant, and he was removed from that role. So these two historical books provide a justification for each of those and the outcomes of Israel's history as we look at that. So the structure and style of these books, the narratives in first and Second Samuel are of three persons: Samuel, from First Samuel, chapter one through seven, Saul. 1 Samuel 8 through 14, and David, 1 Samuel 15 through 2 Samuel 20. The materials in these narratives are normally presented in chronological order. The final chapters, however, in 2 Samuel 21, 1 through 24, verse 25, provides materials which illustrate David's roles and his relationship with God. These materials are in the form of narrative, and they list, as well as poetry, related things to David's life. They're taken from various points in David's life and are not a part of the chronological scheme of the earlier portions of the book. It gets a little complicated. But what he's saying is some of the writings in 2 Samuel include some of David's poetry, not necessarily the chronological history narrative in a chronological manner. So it doesn't have that order when it's interrupted by the writings of David. So the messages given through these two books are similar to other prophets and their writings, but they're not written to inject any new theology. Instead, they were written to reiterate and clarify the theological truths of the Torah. There are several important concepts that were brought forth in these books, and I listed four of them. First one, the need, for obedience to God. That was a key point in these books. The second one, a divine covenant is established for the benefit of God's people, his provision and leadership for Israel through the family line of David. Third, the presence of God among his people. This is especially made clear with his connection with the Ark of the Covenant, and as God was with David. And the fourth is the relationship that exists between the possession of the land of Israel and the people's obedience to God. When Israel sinned, God would lift up enemies to control portions of Israel. So when they failed to obey God, God used other nations to punish them. Also, David himself was forced to leave Israel for a period of time as a consequence of his sin with Bathsheba. So the books of First and 2 Samuel give a great encouragement as well as instruction to how to live our lives in wholehearted obedience to God and the grievous consequence of sin when we fail to do so, when we sin against God. So these things are all pointed out in these two books in a form of narrative, and yet it's so instructive as to how God worked through the nation of Israel and how he punished them and then rewarded them as well. These two books give us a clear picture of the grievous consequence of sin. David's oldest son, Amnon, would have been in line to succeed his father as king over Israel. But because of Amnon's sinful act against Tamar, he is assassinated by his brother Absalom. This caused Absalom to be exiled as well. So the consequence of these sins altered the ruling powers in Israel. 2 Samuel continues the biblical account of David, <clears throat> one of the scripture's greatest figures. The David of 2 Samuel is different, however, than he, the one in 1 Samuel. In the second volume of Samuel, we find sin working in the foundation of the Israelites' kingship. That is, in the very heart of David. This is what transpired in the second book of Samuel. With all the excitement of 1 Samuel, the second book illustrates the discouraging fall that is equally instructive for all believers. David the sinner can teach just as much as David the hero His fall into sin just validates the admonition which Paul gives in Timothy. Pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do, this will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. David also illustrates through his repentance, the principle that was given by the Apostle Peter. In 1 Peter 5, 6, Peter says this, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. Before David's fall into sin, the narrative of David's triumphs are given in chapters 1 through 9, which shows the fruit of the faith-filled life directed by God. The final culmination of David's rule is vitally important. In the seventh chapter, in which we read of God's covenant with David, this is referred to as the Davidic covenant, this covenant with david reveals his eternal kingship which comes out of the line of david david's faith is put on full display and the sad chapters that follow which depict sinful acts of adultery and murder these are all penned in 2 samuel when the prophet nathan Confronts David with his sin, David confesses. As a result of his sin, God punished him by telling him he was going to lose the child he bore through Bathsheba. So David does this. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die, however, because this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. Think about this and what we can learn from this Old Testament example of David. When a Christian sins, it just doesn't affect us. It affects the body of Christ, and it could cause God's name to be blasphemed. That is the consequence of a Christian sin, and David illustrates that in the Old Testament. When the son from his union with Bathsheba dies, David's faith provides encouragement to many Christians and also to parents who have suffered the loss of an infant. He says this, but now he has died. Why should I fast? He had been fasting for seven days and praying and petitioning God to save that child. The child died. And he says, can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. So that is one of the supportive texts for showing that when an infant dies, he will be with the Lord. This verse gives believers confidence, and there is a future reunion after death, which includes the infants of those who were taken. The presence of God's grace following his sin and subsequent repentance are parallel truths given to us in the book of Romans. Paul says this in chapter 5, The law came so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So as we enter this age of grace, we have the understanding that our sin is grievous to God. And yet when we repent and confess our sins, God's grace and forgiveness takes that sin. So we may have repercussions as David did because of this, but we have God's forgiveness when we truly repent and turn from our sin to God for forgiveness. <clears throat> First Samuel starts with the introduction of Elkanah, who is the husband of Hannah and the father of Samuel. Elkanah's name means God has created. We learn in the opening verses of First Samuel about his place of origin, as well as his lineage and his marital status. He was from Ramathan, Zophon, two words, which is the hill country of Ephraim. According to the historians, this was the town listed in the territorial allotment given to the tribe of Benjamin. This was in Joshua chapter 18, verse 25. Other scholars suggest that Ramathin is the same as Armathaea in the New Testament. The actual location, however, of Ramathean or Ramathean is not known. So even though there are speculations, historians said we cannot really know where this area actually existed. So Elkanah reveals something else that's very important about his heritage. Verse 1, and let's look at it. Now there was a certain man from Ramothan Zophan, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Alcana, the son of Jerohom. The son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zup, and Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Pinza. And it's actually pronounced Pinya. Pina had children, but Hannah had none. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hopni and Penas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of to Pina, his wife, and to all his sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. So as we look at this, we see a couple of things. One is, is that Elkanah had two wives. So as we think of this, in this book, as well as God's future dealings with Israel, there are some significant statements. First, the two wives. One Hannah, which means gracious, and one Pina, which means pearl. Since Hannah is named first in this book, it was probably his first wife. And also, Pina had children, but Hannah was barren. When a wife did not have the ability to produce an heir, it was serious in this Near Eastern society. An heir had to be provided for the family not only provided for the preservation of the father's estate within the family unit and also the tribe, in addition, it would provide for the mother after the death of the father so the children could take care of the mother. We might ask, well, why did Elkanah take a wife? This may be the case of an individual took a wife who apparently turned out to be infertile. Desiring an heir and perhaps lacking faith, the individual might take a second wife. We see accounts of this in Scripture, and I'll refer to those. But there was another book, a secular historian wrote this. The ancient code of Abi contains four laws pertaining to taking of a second wife in the event the first was unable to produce an error for that family. So this was a secular book just reflecting on a historical uh, practice of having more than one wife when the first wife was unable to be produce a child. However, we refer, <coughs> we read in Genesis chapter 11, Rachel was barren. In Genesis 29, <coughs> 31, Samson's mother, uh, also in Judges 13, 2, and Elizabeth in Luke 1, 7. So I don't know if I got these clear for you, but Hannah is not the only one mentioned. Sarah is mentioned in Genesis 11.30. Rachel is mentioned in Genesis 31. Both of them were barren at first, later to produce children. Samson's mother in the book of Judges in chapter 13.2. And then again, Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1, verse 7. They were all initially barren. However, as we read further in the account of the book of Samuel, God did not forget Hannah. Even though Elkanah tried to resolve the problem by taking a second wife, God still provided a child through Hannah. We often see throughout Scripture when people are without resources, without hope, and without any human ability to do something, then he loves to stretch forth his hand and bring forth his work, which brings the glory to him. We'll consider more the godly character of Hannah I want to do in detail, because as we look at the character of this woman, the godliness of this woman, it should be an example to all women and an encouragement to all women. We'll continue this in our next study, but the first verses I'll read to you from chapter 1 of First Samuel, verses 3 through 7. <clears throat> now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons, Eli and Hophni and Penaeus were priest to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penea, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, <clears throat> that would be Beneas, would provide, provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. So this continual provoking from Elkanah's second wife was similar to that of Hagar and Sari. So as we look at this, this happened previously in Genesis, but as we consider this, we see the work of God in a miraculous way to bring forth fruitful womb in the Hannah and that she was able to have children. This was... A work of God, and he did intentionally have her barren at first so that he could show his power and his glory through her. But she was a woman of faith, and this is what we're going to look at as we open next time. Any questions before we close? I will try to bring questions forth as we go. Yes, Ron. (laughs) Yeah. Good point. Ron points out the fact that uh, when they requested a king to Samuel and God says, they have not rejected you, but they rejected me, that's exactly what had happened. This is what happened as uh, we look at this text and we had Moses, who was also a prophet, And then when we come to the book of Samuel, they approach him because now the Philistines are going after Israel. They're going to try to attack them and take their land. And because of their disobedience, this was a consequence. And yet, rather than turning back to God, they turn to the prophet and say, no, we want a king. We want a king because he'll give us a military and then we'll be safe. So their entire trust, even though, as Ron pointed out, here's a prophet of God who is getting direct revelation from God and talking to these people and passing on these truths, which he gives them and warning them, this is what's going to happen when you have a king. This is going to happen to you. He's going to take your children. He's going to take your farm. He's going to take your produce. He's going to take everything for his benefit. And you will be owned by him. Yet they still wanted him. They didn't want to put their trust in the God who had protected them and delivered them. And now they're looking to a man. So this is actually is the previous as we look at the book of judges you see this happening all the way through judges they disobey god sends people to punish them they turn they repent they disobey again they're punished again they're constantly throughout the whole book of judges so as we look at that it's no different here in samuel they're disobedient they have turn their trust from God to a man now. So this is how God's going to work through this. So he told them, he said, you want a king? Go ahead, appoint one. Too. You want a savior yeah. yeah, good point. We Ron said that taking it to today in an application, we, people look for... A king and put their trust in a king, but they don't trust the Creator God who provided salvation for those who turn to Him in Christ Jesus. So the nature of man hasn't changed. There's nothing new under the sun. Yes, Peter. You said something earlier to help rather than on the Lord. Good. Good point. Did you all hear that? This, for the sake of the recording, Peter was pointing out how often do we in our lives rather than waiting upon God and trusting God to provide whatever requests we may have or he may use a circumstance in our lives to do a work in us. So our trust is in God, not in man, and it can't transfer all our desires and hopes and men. It's always in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Peter. So let's close in prayer. Uh, Father, we just come to you and we thank you for these treasures that you have left us in your word. And Father, we thank you for the very men that you raised up to inspire and pen your word. And we just ask, Lord, that we not only be able to learn more of the history, but that through this we would learn the aspect of obedience to you and the importance of it and the consequence of our sin. So we thank you, Lord, and ask that you would be glorified as we continue in our worship service, as your word is proclaimed, and as we lift up our hearts in song and praise. We just pray that through all of it, that you will be glorified and that your saints will be edified. We just ask this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.